your Holy Spirit as we dive deeply into your word. And all this we ask in your son's precious and holy name. Thank you. All right. So let's, um, you know, uh, we're going to uh, pick up at verse 9 and, and go on. But I would love someone to read verse 5 to the end of the chapter, 5 through, uh, through 16, um, to get us started today. The reason I left you in Crete was so that you might finish the, straighten out the work that was left unfinished and appoint elders, elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, and a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. As an overseer entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not um, quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others with sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. But there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that ought not to be taught, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they'll be sound in the faith and no longer subject to the Jewish myths and the um, commands of those who do not believe, um, who reject the truth. Um, <clears throat> To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by, the action, by their actions, they deny it. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Good. Thank you, Jim. That was uh, quite, a, quite a work. Thank you. All right, um, so we are looking at the qualifications for elders. Um, we uh, see how important this is because of how strategic and vital uh, healthy local churches are in God's plan for the world. Um, this is vital all over the world. God establishes healthy churches, and essential to healthy churches uh, is um, good leadership. And the New Testament pattern for leadership is a plurality of elders, um, that are filtered by these qualifications, also in 1 Timothy 3, which are parallel. Now, up to this point, we have talked mostly about the character of the man. Uh, now we want to talk about what his ministry uh, involves, his works. Now, there are some works involved in the verses we've seen already, such as hospitality, or someone who loves what is good, doing what is good. Uh, his family life uh, obviously involves a lot of works. Raising children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord involves a lot of work. Uh, so I'm not saying it's been only work, uh, only character traits, but it's been predominantly character traits. So what kind of man ought he to be? But now we're going to turn to what kind of work ought he to do? And this is not a comprehensive list at all. But there's an immediate focus on what? What is his focus? What is the focus of this man's work? Look at verse, verse 9. Go ahead. To teach or instruct. Okay, teach or instruct. Verse 9 says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Uh, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So, just keeping it simple, his uh, primary work is in the Word of God, in the, in, in the ministry of the message or uh, the Word of God. So, uh, he, there are other things that an elder must do, but this is the primary work. Now, why is that, and what does that teach you? 
that the primary work this man ought to give himself to has to do with the Word of God. Well, that's part of the Great Commission. You know, go out and uh, make uh, followers of Christ and what He's given us is His Word. Okay. It's the critical tool of the toolbox. That is the essential work. What is the relationship between the Word, the written Word of God, and salvation? Do you see any connection between the two? I would sure hope so. All right. Any, anyone want to articulate that connection between the written Word of God and human salvation? That's where we get the instruction of how one is saved. Okay. Faith comes from hearing the message about Christ. All right. Romans 10 17. Um, we also have, again and again, displayed for us the creative, energetic power of the Word of God. It's either seen in action or it's described. By the Word of the Lord were the heavens made, the starry host by the breath of His mouth. All right? God said, let there be light, and there's light. Uh, we also have displayed with the valley of dry bones and the prophet Ezekiel where these all these dead bones, dry bones, very dry. And he is told to speak to the bones and to prophesy to them. And as he speaks, the bones assemble themselves. And then he's told to prophesy or speak to the wind. And the wind comes and enters the bones and uh, makes them ultimately come to life. This is a picture of the ministry of the word of God. It's a visionary picture of the power of the proclaimed or prophetic word. God speaks and life comes. God calls things that are not as though they were and gives life to the dead. So it is by the word of God that life comes. We see this also with the resurrection of Lazarus where he says, Lazarus, come forth. And you definitely get the feeling that before he said those words, Lazarus was dead. And as soon as he spoke, Lazarus come forth, Lazarus came to life. And so the elder is called to minister the life-giving word of God. We also learn from uh, Galatians, as I've said many times before, uh, having begun by the Spirit, we're not perfected by the flesh. Uh, you receive the Spirit not by the works of the law, but by hearing with faith hearing the word of God with faith. The same way you begin your Christian life is the way you will complete it, all right? By hearing with faith. That's the implication in Galatians 3. So therefore, the, the key role of the pastor is to keep that process going, to keep feeding the flock the life-giving word of God. You're not any of you done with it yet, and I'm not either. And so we have to give ourselves, as 1 Timothy 4 says, to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching, for by so doing you'll save, Timothy, both yourself and your hearers. So this is the primary work of a pastor, is the uh, ministry of the Word. Sadly, I think uh, one seminary, I don't think it was an evangelical seminary, but some time ago listed um, duties and responsibilities of a local pastor and came to a list of 25 I mean, it really was seen to be almost like a small business owner who had marketing responsibilities, financial responsibilities, leadership responsibilities. It just goes on and on and on. And as you look at that list of 25 responsibilities, I agree that some of them at least, probably not all of them, but some of them really do fall within the purview of a local church pastor. I don't dismiss them. But they're not the primary work. And if you diffuse yourself into all of these other activities... Um, you're going to lose the, the power of what is being called on here, the ministry of the Word. This is the primary work. Now, we know that the apostles understood that when that problem came up with the Greek-speaking widows not receiving enough food. They said, look, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God nor to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom who will turn this responsibility over to them and give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And they understood that. Now you might say, what is so hard about the ministry of the Word? You might think it's a very light and easy thing to do. What would you think would make the ministry of the Word challenging or difficult? It's so easy to get it out of context. Okay. When you read the Word 
a lot of times. And it says one thing, but, but when you dig deeper, the meaning is something a little bit different than what you are actually reading. So what you're saying is the scripture is uh, uh, such a book that its meanings are not always easy to discern. Complex. It is complex. And I said this to the entire church. To me, the simplicity and the complexity of the scripture are a marvel. The basic things you need to know to be saved are simple. So simple a child can understand them. But the fullness of this message is complex. Specifically, a harmonization of the 66 books of the Bible into a cohesive system of truth is a lifetime work. A lifetime work. And if you're a faithful pastor, you're going to take all of this book seriously, and you're going to find it's complicated to put it all together. It is hard to harmonize all that and put it all together. Old covenant, new covenant, how much of the old covenant is still binding in the new, these kinds of things, working on all of these things together. Um, on Sunday, as I get up to preach and continue to go in Mark's gospel, I'm going to talk about both the simplicity and complexity of the word and its difficulties because Jesus said, uh, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have taken place. Whoa, wait a minute. What did you just say? This generation will not pass away until all these things have happened? Do you find a problem with that statement by Jesus? What problem might there be? It seems like they've been dead for 2,000 years, like Jesus swung and missed on that one. But he didn't. So how am I going to get up in front of 500 people and explain that? Honestly, I don't really know. But hopefully on Sunday I'll have a good answer for you. All right? But I still am going to hold fiercely to inerrancy while I look at that verse and call it a difficult verse. And I know that there are various options, and I got that from commentators, and I've thought of some of them myself, and I'll do my best with it, but you can see, therefore, the complexity of the Word of God. This is not an easy work. And if you're going to take the Bible and move systematically through it, you're going to come across difficulties and, and challenges. Sometimes, for me anyway, you have too much information. And too much information clouds the message. Too much information makes it unclear. It makes it complex. It's hard to listen to. It's hard to follow. And so it, it's a hard work. It's a challenging work. I think it goes back to what Lynn was saying, 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That one statement, a calling on me as a pastor to do a good job, an accurate job with the word, is a lifetime work for me. It's a lifetime work. And not everyone's called to do it. Not everyone's called to the ministry of teaching. Most are not, actually. But this, the elder must be. That's what he's called to do. So the work here is not comprehensively laid out. There are shepherding aspects and counseling aspects and all that that are not directly stated here that I think are part of pastoral ministry. And you can find them in other places. But here he focuses specifically on the word. Look at verse 9. First of all, what does it say about him concerning the word? In verse 9. Just look at the verse. What does it say about him in relation to the word? He's got to hold firmly to the trustworthy message. He himself needs to hold firmly to it. Why is that important, that he himself needs to be a believer in the word? Because if he's going to share something with a few people or a congregation, he's got to know it in his heart. Yeah. Can you he's going to share, say or share it down. Absolutely. Can you pick up on when an individual, a preacher, doesn't really believe what he's preaching is the inerrant and perfect word of God? You can pick up on that in a minute. So it all starts with his own convictions that this is a trustworthy message as it has been taught. He's not an innovator. He has taken the baton from the previous generations. It was handed to him at a certain point. And now he's got his time to run and take that baton around the track and he's going to pass it off to the next generation. But he's got to hold firmly to that thing. Like you know the rules of a relay. What happens if he drops the baton in a relay? You lose. You're out. I mean, that's simple. 
And so that drop, it's done. So that's an illustration. We cannot drop this doctrinal baton. We've got to hold firmly to it. Now, he needs to hold firmly to it for his own sake, right? Why would I say that? He's got to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as has been taught for his own sake. You all held to a higher standard on Judgment Day. Okay, he's going to be held to a higher standard. Why is that, Alan? Why are preachers and teachers, as it says in James, held to a higher standard? Well, because you, 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 you've been taught, mm-hmm. and to properly steward that, you, you've got additional teachings, so you've got a greater uh, accountability, yeah. stewardship of that message. So picking up, Alan, on what you just said, the word accountability, what I read in the scripture is judgment day accountability is proportional to knowledge, right? The more knowledge you have, the more accountable you are. Do you guys see that principle in the Bible? I think it's true. So the more you know, the more you're held accountable. To him whom much is given, much is expected. And so these, these pastors have been given much of the word of God and they're held accountable. But why else? Why else are pastors held to a higher standard? Because they are, they are uh, to be an, uh, an example and they're observed, they're observed by their, the people that they're in. They're observed, that's right. And you have to live the way they're... Yeah, it is, it is a combination of right doctrine and holy living together. And, and those things together. Furthermore, he's not done being saved. This man himself. He's not finished his race yet. Is he in any way a particular focus of Satan and demons? I'm telling you he is. And why is that? Jim, why would a pastor be a specific or strategic focus for a demonic attack? Well, a, a wise demon would know to go to the head mm-hmm. and, and to, to try to distort the message yeah. any way he could. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's strategic. If, if he can take out the pastor, a lot of people are going to fall. All right, A lot of people are going to be hurt by that. So I'll take it, for example, my marriage. I consider my marriage to be both private and public domain, right? I don't have the right to do whatever I want with my marriage, right? Because people are depending on me to do well in my marriage. Does that make sense? And, and so I, and I think that's biblically true, and I accept that challenge, and I'm actually thankful for it. I'm thankful for it, all right? So I'm probably saying more than I should, but every, every Sunday, Christy and I pray right before I preach, and I lean together, and she'll hold, we'll hold hands and all that. I can tell you there have been times over the last number of years that I haven't wanted necessarily to do that with that particular person, all right? <laughs> um, I'm saying more than I should. I'm on camera. Hi, whoever's watching here. Um, but it's not her fault. It's mostly me, and, you know, but it's like, I can't give that up. Imagine if I said, I just don't want to pray with you today. Literally right before I go up to preach to the church. That will not do. It'd be very much like Samson after his haircut. I have no power at that point. The Lord won't go with me if I have some kind of problem with my wife. You like taking communion in an unworthy manner? Yeah, very much so. And I actually, I'm telling you, brothers, I know this. I know it on Saturday evening. Like, the two of us are going to pray tomorrow. <laughs> and I don't want to give up on that. And I actually find it a positive help to me to get my act together, to reconcile quickly, to settle matters quickly with her. Does that make sense? And so that's just a little detail. So there's, there's this whole, whole system of holiness that I'm responsible for. Go ahead. The pastor is being watched not only by the congregation but by the world at large. Right. So there's a wider audience mm-hmm. looking at you and saying, yeah. let's watch him stumble so we can yeah. take him down and take him and do it. Yeah, for sure. And, and I also realize I don't want that to be the only time that Christy and I hold hands and bow together in prayer. I want to do that many times throughout the week so she doesn't feel like it's a big show. That makes sense? So I've thought about all of these things, and I have my own natural reasons for wanting to do that throughout the week. Um, but at any rate, that's just an example. So he needs to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as has been taught, because primarily, he's not done being saved yet, and he is uh, the, uh, the focus of attack by the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're coming after him, and he has to protect his own soul. 
but he also has to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can convincingly teach it to others. If he doesn't believe it, people will see it. They'll know it. He's, he's an actor. He's a fake. He's a hypocrite. So he's got to truly believe, truly believe what he preaches. One of the things that I want to say to you is what extended memorization uh, of Scripture has done for me over these decades has given me a far greater sense of the perfection and unity of the Word of God than I ever had before I did it. Does that make sense? It, is, it has fed my sense of wonder and amazement at the Word of God. It's greater now than it's ever been before. And that's why I do it, not primarily so I can recite scriptures, etc., but that I have a sense of the beauty and perfection and complexity of this scripture. So I'm holding fast to it for the sake of my own soul. So he must hold uh, firmly to this trustworthy message as it has been taught. Um, what does that mean to you? The word, my translation says trustworthy. Are there other translations? Faithful, I think, maybe. Faithful. All right, it's a faithful message. Um, you know, what does that mean to you? Faithful or a trustworthy message? True. All right, we'll start with that. It's true. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. That's all true. So he, that's, that's beautiful. Any other thoughts on this idea of a trustworthy message? It's important and it's never ending. Okay. And it'll accomplish what it says. Okay. And there's even enough logical data for our minds. He was gracious enough to give us enough yeah. eyewitness accounts that, that cross over so well mm -hmm. as to even minister to our, mm -hmm. our doubtful minds. So good. Um, here's, a, here's a scripture that helps me understand the idea of trustworthy or faithful. Um, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus concluded with these words, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rock. So what does the word rock mean to you? What is the analogy there, the rock? The building your house on the rock, as opposed to, he'll say in a moment, sand. Stability. It's sound. It's not going anywhere. The scripture is, like God, immutable. So whatever you read decades ago, and it was true, as you said, brother, decades ago, it's still true today. It's not going anywhere. And so that's what I think it means, trustworthy or faithful message. It's unchanging. And yet, for all of that, we're told that the word of God is living and active. Have you ever met a rock that's living and active? I never have. What do those words mean to you? Living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. What does it mean that the words living and active? It's being applied to our lives because our lives change day to day, moment by moment. I absolutely think that's it. The word never changes, the truths never change, but it's applied to a constantly moldable, shapeable, changeable people. And that the Holy Spirit is opening up our minds. Exactly, and we're... Uh, last night, Romans 9, we are like clay in the hands of the potter. We are moldable. Um, the Greek word is plasma. We're plastic. We're shaped. And so in that sense, that nexus between the unchanging word of God and the ever-changing people of God, that's where it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, able to penetrate, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It clearly shows it's a nexus as it's applied to changeable human beings, it's living and active. But in and of itself, it's unchanging. It's immutable. And that's, that's pretty beautiful. So that's why it's so cool when you see new insights in a passage you've read 433 times before. That insight was there all along, you just didn't see it. And that's really cool. I love it when that happens. That's really, really cool. And so the, the point is not so much it wasn't there all along. It's that I wasn't ready to see it. I hadn't noticed it before. I'm at a different place in my life now, and then it comes in. So it is a faithful message as it has been taught. Chris, go ahead, brother. You know, the word itself. Mm -hmm. Trustworthy. It's worth mm -hmm. something. It's of value. The word is of great value. And you can put your trust in it that it is true, as the brother said. Um, it's, it's powerful. Praise God. 
So, and I want you to know, and, and all of the men that I work with here on staff, all the elders, um, we have a tremendous sense of the privilege of doing this work. You know, I was an engineer for 10 years, and uh, I, I have a high level of esteem for lay leaders, lay Christians that grow in their faith while they hold down secular jobs. I think it's a hard thing to do because you're busy all day long with your work, but meanwhile you're getting enough time to feed your soul on the Word of God and to be diligent, and that, that's incredible. But for me, personally, I think it's a tremendous privilege to do my work, my trade, so to speak, in the Word of God. It's a great privilege, and I want all of the staff elders to feel that way too. It's not an automatic given thing that any of us would continue to do this. You have to protect it, and you have to hold it as precious. Very great honor. All right, so this individual needs to hold firmly to the trustworthy message, it says, as it has been taught. What does that mean to you, that phrase? He's got to hold firmly to a message that has been taught in a certain way. What does that tell you about this, this whole process? Paul has poured into him. Okay. So, from one to another. Yeah. So we're not looking for innovation here. Okay? <laughs> That's not the goal here for the elder. He's not, not, his job is not to innovate. Going back to the relay race, as he gets the baton for him to look at it and say, wait, 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 what's this? I think we can make this baton better. <laughs> it's like, that's not his job, bro. His job is to run it around the track and hand it off. Now, I believe it's not innovation, but it's, it's exciting to see new things in the Word that really are there. And that's exciting, that's fine. But the basic milk of the Word, the basic truths of the Gospel, that what was received, we passed on as a first importance, Christ died for our sins. You're not innovating any of that. That's what was handed off to you. This is the faithful message as it has been taught for centuries. And your job is not to innovate it, you're not to come up with something that nobody's ever seen before. Your job is get it around the track and hand it off. Hand it off to people. Hand it off to lost people, people who need to hear this gospel. But that's your job. As it has been taught, that's what we're looking for. All right, so he's going to hold firmly to the message. It is a faithful message. It's a trustworthy message. It's the message that has been taught. Why? Well, once that thing, he's got that conception. The Word of God is my work. This is a faithful message. It's been handed to me. I'm entrusted now with this responsibility. I'm going to give an account to God for what I do with it. All right, now what? Now he turns outward to people. And his job is to encourage and refute. Those are the two things, that are the two activities here. Encourage and refute. So there's a positive work and a negative work. Or you could say there's an offense and defense to the ministry of the Word of God. So you're energetically going out there and you want to encourage others, it says, by sound doctrine. Now that word encourage, parakaleo, could be translated a number of different ways. Simply teach, sometimes exhort, sometimes encourage, sometimes warn. The basic Greek word means called alongside. It's connected to the work of the Holy Spirit, the counselor or the comforter. So if you give counsel, you give comfort. And it's a multifaceted word because the people need different things at different times, right? If you're a shepherd of souls, you're going to find sometimes the people need instruction. They're just things they didn't know, and you teach them. Sometimes they need encouragement because of circumstances in their lives. Sometimes they need exhortation. What would you say is the difference between those two words, encouragement and exhortation? Encouragement, um, to me, it's, all, it's talked about in the Bible. Encouraging is a building up of a person and lifting them up when they least expect it or is, is needing it. Okay. Um, I do it all the time when I go places and I like, deal with people. Um, I always thank you for doing the job you're doing because you don't know what that person's going through. You just, they, there's a need there. And when you least, when they least expect it, they get it. Okay. Encouraging is keeping them on the path, and exhorting them is getting them back on the path. Yeah, I would say the basic thank you. The basic difference between the two, it comes down to: is the individual doing 
a good thing that you're focused on or not. If they're doing a good thing, an encouragement says keep doing it. You're doing well, keep, keep going. Is that important in the Christian life? If you're, to be told that you're doing well, keep going. Yeah. Do you see patterns for that in the New Testament? You are doing well, now keep doing well. Yeah, I can find numbers of verses. Thessalonians, he says, we've instructed you to love the brothers, which in fact you are doing. Now we ask you and urge you to do so more and more. So that would be that kind of encouragement work. And Jim, you said exhortation is what? Getting back on the path. Yeah, so you're not doing the good thing that you need to do. You, and then you get exhorted, all right? Like you think about a coach at halftime and the team played rather listlessly in the first half and you're losing by 11 points. What do you think the locker room looks like? There is some exhortation going on in the locker room in different paths. I have no idea what you're talking about. But at any rate, and I don't want to know. I don't want to take time. We're running out of time. All right, but at any rate, so encourage and exhort, and you're going to need to do both in the ministry. How do you know what to do? When you're dealing with a, a sheep, you're dealing with a person, how do you know what to do? Listen first. Listen, okay. Interact with them. They have, you have to know what's going on. Know them. Care about them. Care about them, listen. Them to listen, really listen and understand it. Yeah. Observe. Observe, watch, you know. And that's part of the, lo- the beauty of a, of a healthy local church, isn't it? You, it's what we call know and be known. And that's true of pastors too. They know you, you know them. You know, there's just that beautiful relationship. And if somebody's decaying a bit in their walk, they're drifting a bit, you, you know, because they've, they've made changes. And not the changes aren't good. And you say, hey, I'm worried about you. And you're able to speak up. information from those people. You observe them, etc. You listen. Then you also know whether to encourage or exhort yeah. Praise God. And that, it's just such a good work. Chris, go ahead, brother. I think it holds firmly to the, uh, the, the message that's worthy of our trust. You know, when you come across a situation like that, oftentimes that's where the Holy Spirit will nudge you. He'll give you a verse or he'll give you some sort of an encouragement or an exhortation for somebody and, and hold you firmly to that word can help you in that situation. There also seems to be a shepherding analogy here because in those two situations, it's like you're nourishing the flock, but then you also have the responsibility to protect the flock from outside threats. Yeah, so, we're gonna, we're definitely gonna go there for sure. But you know, we've got this uh, positive and negative work. So you you referred to the negative. We'll get there in a minute. But the positive work is is really a work. I would think of edification. That that's the idea. You're edifying. What does that word mean to you? To edify. What is an edifice? Something that was built. It's a building, right? So edification is a building up. So there's an architectural image like living stones or a temple rising. There's an architectural picture sometimes of a building, a work work being built. And so you want to see Christ formed. Paul used that language. Christ formed in people. So you want to see them built up toward maturity, trying to build them up, and that building up. You know, that's why it says, uh, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So there's that building up. You're seeking to build up. So that's what I get out of this. He's, uh, he's going to encourage others. And it says by sound doctrine. What does the adjective sound mean to you? Sound. What does it mean to be of sound mind and body? Clear. Okay. I'll say Healthy. Do you think, yeah, it's related to the, the Greek word here is related to the word for hygiene. So it's, uh, it's, it's um, healthy. I think that's a simple translation, healthy. And it goes very much for me in, uh, to Luke 5 where Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus is the great healer and he wants to produce health. He wants to produce um, spiritual health like he produced physical health. He would take unseeing eyes, the organ, the complex organ that was not doing what it was designed to do, and by various means, different blind people, he would deal with in different ways, but to the end of health. Now the eyes can see. They were designed to see. And the same thing with legs. They were not designed to be paralyzed or limp or weak. They were designed to be strong and to enable somebody to walk. Jesus would heal the paralyzed man so he could 
walk. So then our souls, I believe, were designed for the two great commandments. They were designed to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors, ourselves. We're made for that. Therefore, Jesus heals you so you can do that. The word of God is a healing agent. It is a health-producing health thing. Sound doctrine is healthy doctrine or we could say right doctrine. Um, the, al the alternate the uh, opposite would be what? Opposite of sound doctrine. False doctrine, right? But keeping with the healthy thing, it would be diseased or sick. It's somehow sick doctrine, and it produces sickness in people. Like a very good example of this is the so-called prosperity gospel. You guys know what that is, the prosperity gospel? What is that? What is, what's the basic idea of the prosperity gospel? Okay, name it and claim it. All right. The idea that God would bless you uh, in this world with prosperity right. if you follow Yeah, material prosperity. You'll get wealthy and physically healthy, and it's a false doctrine, false gospel. And it's spread like a disease in sub-Saharan Africa and many Latin American countries and in America. And uh, there are whole networks, like Christian telev televised networks that are based on the prosperity gospel. It's what they are. Joel Osteen's a prosperity teacher. It's what, it's what they do. Um, so fundamentally, that's, that's the opposite of sound doctrine. So how, can you, how, how, how do you take the Bible and get to sound doctrine? How do we understand what sound doctrine is? The Bible is sound doctrine. Okay. But of course, Satan quotes the Bible. He never quotes it well. So um, how do we make sure that what we teach, that what I teach is sound doctrine? Okay, it lines up. There's the analog analogy of faith that lines up well. You believe it's from, it's from God. But um, you just, it's God's word. Right, so the, uh, the elder's primary responsibility is to encourage others, it says, by sound doctrine. Then it says, uh, refute those who oppose it. So what does that word mean, refute? No, that's not right. Well, that sounds impolite, Lynn. I mean, that sounds like you're arguing with somebody, you know? <laughs> yeah. Correct those. Correct it? Okay. Refute. I was to say, if I agree with you, then we both be wrong. Okay. That's good. If I agree with you, we'll both be wrong. Yeah. Show them where they're wrong. Yeah. There are right and wrong answers. You know, it's like, uh, you know, how somebody say, hey, look, there are no right or wrong answers here. Well, that's just not true. All right. When it comes to Bible teaching, it is not true that there are no right and wrong answers. All right. Now, there are wise and unwise ways of handling answers that people give. I understand that. And there's rudeness and there's harshness and there's unkindness. But none of that is the point. The point here is, is it true or not? Is it, is it true doctrine? Is it sound doctrine or not? And these individuals... Um, are uh, opposing sound doctrine. That's literally what the verse says. They are opposing sound doctrine. They are therefore health. Uh, they are therefore false teachers. Now, this is a this is a, a vital conception that a pastor needs to understand. You think about the body, physical body, and I've said this before, but it's an analogy. We'll use health. What part of the body would you say is exempt? from disease exempt from decay or disease exempt skin are there skin diseases yes are there dental diseases jim <laughs> okay are there any teeth that are exempt from decay or disease no are are there any bodily systems the circulatory system immune from disease no. alan the eyesight is there any part of eyesight that's immune from that cannot be touched by disease you can make a career out of treating those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, well spoken. There is, isn't there a book that is a compendium of all the known diseases to man? What's that called? Like a, like a, 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 a physician's guide to disease. It's a taxonomy of disease, isn't there? I, 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 maybe I'm wrong about that, but I'll, I'm telling you, turn it around, you look at the body, and there is no part of the body 
immune to disease. None. All right, now bring that over to doctrine. A body of doctrines. Is there any part of that immune to satanic attack? No. None. All of it has been or is being contradicted at some point. Now, some eras of church history, some aspects of doctrine are focused on uniquely and attacked uniquely in that time. But the whole body of doctrine flowing from the Scripture has been in some way contradicted or refuted or opposed by some body of false teachers at some point. And they're going to try to find errors in it and try to deny it as well. Exactly. So anything the Bible asserts about God, about humanity, about sin, about gender, about what we're teaching here, about plurality of elders, whatever, at some point has been contradicted. But there's an ancient history of this. It goes back to Eve at the tree and the serpent. You remember that? And the conversation they had as recorded in Genesis 3? Uh the serpent came up, and what did he say to Eve as he began that conversation? Has God truly said? Did God really say you should not eat from any tree in the garden? First contradiction. Well, there are three categories of his approach. Did God really say? She answers. And then what's the second thing the serpent says? You will not surely die. Then what's the third thing? Right after that, the serpent says, For God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. These are three timeless categories of satanic approach to the Word of God. First, raising questions. Just raising questions. Questioning. That's how it all starts. Just raising questions. The second is a flat-out contradiction of something that God has said. Did God say, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die? Did God say that to Adam? He absolutely did. What did Satan say about that? It's not true. So that's a flat-out contradiction in the pattern of this verse. Refuting sound doctrine. That's a contradiction. All right? Perception. Right. Third category. God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Is that true? Every word of it is true. And so it is with all of the cults and the false religions. They mix truth and error. It's not all error. All right? Like Islam believes in monotheism, believes there is one God and only one God. Is that true? Yes, he's just not Allah. But they are right about that. Does Mormonism get some things right? Yeah, definitely. Did the Jehovah's Witnesses get some things right? They actually do. And therein lies the danger. You're served a plate of doctrinal food and there is a mixture of poison and good sound food and it's all mixed together. And why would Satan do that? Why would he not only do error? Because it would be very easy for you that. So by complexly mixing together truth and falsehood, you start to wonder what's truth and what's falsehood. And you get confused and you become vulnerable. And that includes, uh, you know, when, when he says things that are overtly true and it's like that draws people into the movement. You know, does God want his people to be prosperous and healthy eternally? I think he does. Richer than any prosperity gospel teacher has ever conceived of. That's how rich God wants you to be. Right? And he wants you to be healthier than any prosperity gospel teacher has ever conceived. What is the nature of the health of the resurrection body? You can't even measure how healthy that's going to be. And how rich are the redeemed going to be? They're going to inherit the earth. So all that's true. Just not this side of death. This side of the second coming. Remember Revelation 21.4? There'll be no more death, mourning, crying, and pain. Why? Because the old order of things has passed away. And all things are made new. Has that happened yet? Has the old order of things passed away and all things have been made new? If it happened, I missed it. 
and I don't think it's happened because I can look around and I can tell. So they have switched things up and mixed things up in ways that are very damaging and unhealthy. And so there's that, that mixture. And so these individuals are refuting, uh, are, are, sorry, are opposing sound doctrine. So the, the pastor, the elder, has to be skillful in refuting that. They have to be able to unweave what's true and what's false here. Like when I got here, the thing that we fought over, among other things, was uh, gender and authority, all right? And so I had to kind of unweave what were the basic positive conceptions of feminism? What were aspects of it that we could actually say, biblically, we can do even better for women than the feminist movement? Like how did Jesus conceive of women? How did Jesus treat women. How would you, how would you articulate Jesus' treatment of women? Value tremendous value, tremendous respect. Did he see them as having an indispensable role in his body in the church? Sure. Absolutely. So if you believe in gender-based roles, you have to be careful not to go too far and denigrate women and make them feel insulted. Because Jesus never did that. You see what I'm saying? You have to be able to unweave these things and say, all right, there are gender-based roles. God does want men to lead, but that doesn't in any way minimize women as humans or as making indispensable contributions to the life of the church. And you don't say that by way of throwing women a bone. No, you do it because that's how Jesus was. That's how he treated people. What, what worth and value did Jesus see in the Samaritan woman's soul? Did he see any worth and value in her soul? Did he want her to spend eternity in heaven? No doubt. And he used her to bring the entire village to come hear more about the kingdom, right? Incredible. So all I'm saying is you have to be able to discern what's true, what's false, how are we going to get through that. But you have to refute those, um, you know, or you have to oppose those who refute sound doctrine. You know, it's interesting, Pastor David, that you talk about this because we were talking about this Monday night. Not only was the Samaritan woman, but it was the man who with the mat um, and other things. But later on, we talked about it and said that those, there were those who still did not believe and they did not have the faith. And this is really important to me because last night it says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And I find that is interesting because it also talks about being without blame and we are to be pure children of God. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's hard, let me tell you something, it's hard and sometimes unpopular to do this refuting or rebuking work. All right, I remember hearing one individual um, got into all kinds of trouble when he preached at a supposedly evangelical undergraduate college, like maybe Wheaton or something, I don't know what it was, on why God is father and not mother. It was the and not mother stuff that got him into trouble. It was not the positive teaching, but it was the negation that got him into trouble. And, and yet it's true. God is never presented as mother, all right? I understand there's some analogy of uh, like a, a hen gathering her chicks under her wings, etc., but they're few and far between. The images of God are overwhelmingly masculine, even though God isn't, doesn't have a gender. God doesn't have a body. So, but it got him into trouble. So you have to be willing to say that is false. That is untrue. And that it can get you into problems. Um, let's keep going. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they're ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. So now we have a couple of verses on the specific challenge that, uh, that Titus is going to be uh, facing in Crete, the specific aspects of the false teachers. Now, I went quickly in my mind through the New Testament epistles and thought, how many times are false teachers or false teaching mentioned? And it's again and again and again. Philippians, one of the sweetest epistles, chapter 3, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Second Corinthians, we got the so-called super apostles 
who masquerade as servants of righteousness the way that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so you have to, those are false teachers, right? You have these warnings again and again of false doctrine. All right, so who are these false teachers? What, how does he describe them? First of all, what is their basic doctrinal approach? The Judaizers. Yeah, it doesn't say that here, but they are called of the circumcision group. So, who, Alan, who are these people, the Judaizers of the circumcision group? They're the original inspiration for Obamacare. <laughs> okay, here we go. We got, it's 2024, we got a year of political references, so off we go, go ahead. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. They were, if you like your Jesus, you can keep your Jesus. Nice, thank you, Alan, I appreciate that. I'd, I'd never seen that connection before, Alan. <laughs> All right, well, let's try to, try to remember what they taught. And the clearest way of doing that is to go to Acts 15, where they are formally put down. Did you say Definitely. But look at Acts 15. This is, Acts 15 will give you the clearest articulation of what the Judaizers taught. And, uh, and, and the key verses are verse 1 and verse 5. So Acts 15, verse 1 and verse 5. Someone read that. Acts 15. Men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And then verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey, to obey the law of Moses. Putting it all together then, what is the doctrine of this group? Law of Moses. For what? To be circumcised. To what end? To be saved. Whoa, 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 wait a minute now. The Gentiles, in order to be saved from hell, have to do what? And that's all? Just circumcision? That's it. Just that one surgery and you're all set? Verse 5, look at verse 5, read it. What does it say? The law of Moses, what's that? Well, how long do you have? Now we're into a whole thing that Peter called a yoke that neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. And a whole system that the Pharisees developed of Sabbath observance, of ritual washings, of that whole religion. That's what they meant. And if you do that, you can be saved. You can go to heaven and not hell. That's a lifestyle. You understand what I'm saying? It is not just circumcision. Circumcision is a doorway into a whole life, which Paul calls in Galatians a gospel that is no gospel at all. Because gospel means what? Good news. And this is not good news. That if you are circumcised and obey the law of Moses, you can be saved. Why is that not good news? Nobody could do it. By the law, you know sin, that's all. You don't know deliverance from sin. The law doesn't deliver anyone from sin. And so that is not a gospel. It is no gospel at all. It is a false gospel. And Paul says he, wish, he wishes that those that taught them would emasculate themselves. He says they should go to hell. He, he, you can't use stronger language than what Paul uses in Galatians for these people. And they apparently were everywhere. They were spread all over the place. And they, they, you bump into these people again and again. That is who the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh are in Philippians 3. They're Judaizers. Now, that's not the only false doctrine that the church faced. The Colossian philosophical false doctrine mixed in a little of that Jewish legalism, but there was other uh, Greek philosophy that came in there. Uh, Proto-Gnosticism. There's some, some of that stuff going on. But definitely, fundamentally, uh, Acts 15.1 and 15.5 says it. That's what these uh, circumcision people taught. The pattern of Jewish legalism. But it also mentions myths and genealogies. And you're like, what in the world is that? And Timothy, in 1 Timothy, it talks about this too. These myths and genealogies. Do you have any sense of what that is? Jewish myths and genealogies. Well, Jewish did dealt with the genealogies from Adam. Mm-hmm. You know, you, if you read the Bible, mm-hmm. there's so many listings of, of genealogies. Mm-hmm. Were, they, yeah. were they doing, isn't that a reference to uh, 
people who were demonstrating their spirituality by getting in debates on subjects that were not of glory Yeah, definitely that was going on. What does the word myth mean to you? It's a myth. Yeah, it's, it's a, but it's a story, an elaborate story, right? You think about Greek myths, Roman myths, Viking myths. It's an elaborate story that has a moralistic point, something like that. It's not true. Now, these are Jewish myths. So this is like a, a kind of a separate track of, of virtue and moralistic stories that's not found in the Bible that became part of, frankly, I would call it Jewish mysticism. Um, and it was linked to numerology, it was linked to other things, and it was a whole mystical system like the Kabbalah or something like that, which is mixed in this, this Jewish spirituality that's not biblical, mixed in with legalism, which is coming from the Law of Moses but wasn't understood properly. That's what they're offering here. It's a mess. And so that's why we often have this Jewish myths and genealogies. Like they would do numer a numerological analysis of Abraham's name. The letters would be assigned a number and they'd add it up and come up with the number 318 or 138 or whatever. By the way, they did the same thing with the big catch of fish, by the way, when, you know, in uh, 156 fish that were caught, remember in John 21? You would not believe what the ancient church fathers did with the number 156. It's incredible what you can do with it. Um, but at any rate, this is the kind of mysticism and false kind of mythological teaching that's getting mixed in. It's not sound doctrine, though. And so that's what these folks are doing. They are, um, uh, these, the circumcision group are, are teaching this to the Cretans. The Cretans were Gentiles. So as the gospel spreading through the island of Crete, these people are tailing, you know, coming right up behind and they're teaching this legalism and this mysticism. And so what is Titus supposed to do about that? And not only Titus, but the elders that he's supposed to appoint in every town, they need to be equipped to do what? Silence them, refute them, oppose them. Pay no attention to them. Yeah, but he, he's, you gotta be doctrinally skilled. And like, how do you do that? How do you refute the whole circumcision thing? Well, Paul will teach you. All right, let's start with Abraham. Abraham was justified how? How was Abraham made right? By faith. Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was before he was circumcised. He was an uncircumcised man. So did Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, have to be circumcised in order to be saved? No. That's how you refute it. Paul shows us in Romans 4 how to do it. All right? And then in Galatians, he shows that it's a work, a work of the law. And if you do that, you, you're obligated to keep the whole law. You've got to keep every point of it. And so there are different ways that you refute it. You've got to be skillful at it. You've got to know how to do it. So anyway, um, that's what they're teaching. How does he characterize them? How does he describe them? We've got one or two more minutes. Let's use them. How does he de de uh, describe these circumcision people? They're insubordinate. means they're not submissive to authority. Okay, my translation says rebellious, so that's good. Yeah, they're not submissive to authority. All right, rebellious, insurrectionists. All right, rebellious. What else does he say about them? Empty talkers. What does that mean, an empty talker? Kind of like a windbag or something like that? <laughs> All right, so they're full of a lot of hot air. Um, some of it has to do with, um, with rhetoric. They're, they're polished public speakers. They use flourishing rhetorical skills, which Paul didn't do. Um, he's like, we didn't, I'm not a polished speaker. I'm not a trained speaker. Well, there's a whole system of rhetoric that they would learn. But these guys are very good at this grandiose kind of speech. They're pu puffed up windbags. Um, that's what he calls them. And then what else? Deceivers. They're deceivers. They're liars. All right. And what are they primarily deceptive about? Well, let me ask a question. In these verses, what is their motive? What are they after? What do they want? Submission. They do that. They want that. But in the in the passage, okay, why? For what? Money. Verse eleven. The end of verse eleven. Dishonest gain. What's gain? What does that mean? Money. Money. They're in it for money. They're in it for worldly things. By their fruit, Jesus said, you'll know them. Look for luxury. Look for sensuality. 
You know, Peter said with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. Look for maybe some women on the side, this kind of thing. These cult leaders do these kinds of things. That's why Jesus said, by their fruit, you'll know them. So they're in it for that worldly lifestyle. It's what they're going after. All right, Chris, would you close? Chris Bowen, would you close in prayer, brother? Lord God, we thank you that you meet with us here, that you care for us, that you called us to yourself. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to be diligent to study your word, to show ourselves the truth, that we can encourage others along the path and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.